We're back in Romans 8. Last time we looked at Romans 8, 18 to 23, and the main point was suffering. This present time is a time of, not, it's not just suffering, it's not just a time of suffering, but it is a time in which Christians suffer all sorts of things. Persecution and in a whole host of other ways Christians suffer. This text, as we move kind of to the next two verses, I included 18 to 23, but also now have 24 and 25, the point is hope. Hope in the present time of suffering. It's all driving at hope. In verses 24 and 25, the word hope is used five times. The point is abundantly clear. Now, when we talk about hope, I think we understand, I hope we do, I think, I think we, we understand that the word hope is often uh, misused in our culture. Um, in a whole host of ways that don't really get at the reality of biblical Christian hope. And it's not all wrong that we use the word in these ways, but it's certainly not driving at what I'm going to talk about today in terms of hope. We say things like, I hope it cools down this week, which thankfully I think it will. Um, We say things like, I hope uh, I get that promotion or I hope my favorite team is going to have a good season, and so forth. That's not Christian hope. That's kind of a, um, you know, we kind of almost anxiously say those things. Well, I really hope. We kind of cross our fingers, uh, especially if you're a Bears fan, right? We kind of hope that this is going to be a good year for them. Um, Christian hope is a lot more certain and durable than that. So Hebrews 6 talks about our hope, being a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Okay, sure, steadfast anchor. Not only that, Christian hope is life-giving. You know, the way we use hope in common daily vernacular about a whole host of things, it's not really something that produces life in us. Like I said, sometimes it's said anxiously or almost in a doubtful way. But Christian hope is life-giving. Peter says that we have been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to a living hope. In other words, hope is not just something we're glad to have when we die. Certainly that's true. But it's something for our life. It's a living hope. Some translations say a lively hope. So our hope is a lively hope. So hope is something that can actually carry us through our lives. Think about that. Hope is something that can carry us through all of our life, even though we don't fully see or experience the thing we hope for. And there's one more thing I just want to mention. Well, let me me back up. So that last point. Hope carries us through life, even if we don't see in this life what we fully hope for. Read Hebrews 11. All of the saints in Hebrews 11, they were looking for something that they didn't experience in this life. There's one more thing about hope that I think gets to the point of our passage today, and it's this. Hope, Christian hope, goes against human natural odds. Okay? We see things with our eyes, we feel things with our bodies, and Christian hope pushes back against those things, against all odds. So it was said of Abraham, this is really interesting, but I think it's so important. It helps us understand what hope is. 
Abraham, it was said of him in Romans 4.18, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as it had been told to him. Okay? So that's kind of a strange phrase. It says, in hope he believed against hope. But when we're reminded of the context, I think it makes sense. Okay? It's referring to Genesis 15, when God told Abraham to look to the heavens and count the stars if he could. Of course, there's no way he could. Then God said, that's how many children you're going to have. That's how many offspring you're going to have. But there was a problem. Abraham and Sarah were childless and really old. And so when you look at the natural course of events, Sarah could never give birth to a child. She was barren. And Abraham's body, Romans 4 goes on to say, was as good as dead. He was about 100 years old. And that's why it says, in hope he believed against hope. All the natural signs were pointing to no way that can't happen, and yet he hoped. And he believed what God said. He had all of these natural things saying that's never going to happen, and yet he had a word from God, a word of promise, and so in hope he believed against hope. So Christian hope shines against hope, against natural human odds. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said about hope. He said, hope itself is like a star, not seen in the sunshine of prosperity and only to be discovered in the night of adversity. Christian hope's like a star. We don't see it in the sunshine of prosperity. It shows up and we discover it in the night of adversity. That is So important. I think even Christians, we understand that the world uses the word hope in a way that's inappropriate, but I think sometimes we do too. And so I think what Paul is saying here, excuse me, I think that's what Paul is saying here in our text, that hope is something that shows up in the nighttime of adversity. It shows up in this present time of suffering. So in present suffering, we have the hope of future glory. And this takes us back again to two weeks ago. We live in the present time in which there are, we suffer trials, not, not, just, not just people generally, but Christians do too. We suffer trials, natural disasters, sickness, disease, pain, loss, and death. And this is because God has subjected creation of which we're a part to futility. He's subjected it to corruption, to decay. But, like we saw two weeks ago, God did that in hope. You guys remember that? God subjected to the, wor- the world to futility. Or excuse me, it says that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. God did this in hope. And God's hope God's ultimate purpose, God's hope can be our hope. And this is the hope that we need. It's the hope that we need. So here's, uh, coming back to Romans 8, especially verses 24 and 25 is we're going to look at today. But I wanted just to have the, whole con- the broader context read. Here's the big idea as I see it. In this present time of suffering, the dominant Christian attitude is to be one of hope. Okay? Now, 
You don't have to be going through the ringer and be threatened with death to just admit, listen, we face trials and difficulties. And in this time in which we do, this present time of suffering, the dominant Christian attitude is to be one of hope. And there's three things I want you to see from this text that I think will help give shape and contours to our hope. Because hope, Christian hope, is more than a slogan. Okay? It's more than just a tag word we say, I have hope. It's more than just saying, hope and change. Let's hope for change or whatever. It has contours. And so verses 24 and 25 give shape to Christian hope. And I want you to notice three things. First, the object of our hope. We're going to look at that. Second, the substance of our hope. And third, the manner in which we are to hope as Christians. So first, let's look at the object of our hope. Verse 24 says this, For in this hope we were saved. Now it begs the question, in what hope? Well, it takes us back to verse 23, where Paul says that not only does the created order groan, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's talking about Christians, we groan. We groan as we eagerly wait adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's a really interesting phrase, okay? We await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The reason I think that's interesting is because we've already been adopted, right? Haven't we? If you're a child of God, it's because God, by his grace through Christ, brought you into his family and adopted you, right? He purchased you through the blood of Jesus and said, you're mine and you're mine forever. But then Paul here is saying there's something out in the future still that's called we eagerly groan for adoption as sons. Even in our context, just, just about eight or nine verses earlier, Paul said that we've received the spirit of adoption. It's by the spirit of adoption that we cry, Abba, Father. And yet, there's something related to our adoption that hasn't happened yet. Paul goes on to say, so adoption is sons, the redemption of our bodies. Apparently our adoption, our salvation is completed when our bodies are redeemed. And so what is the object of our hope? It's resurrection. Christ has been raised and someday you and I will be too. And everyone who has died in Christ, our bodies will be raised. It is while we live in these bodies, currently unredeemed, that we are in the present time. A time of suffering and futility and corruption. And again, this is so important because sometimes we can, people can have this over-realized eschatology that we ought to get it all now. The problem is, we all know that's not the way it is. And so we, we have this hope out in front of us, and it's resurrection. It's not when our bodies go into the ground that our salvation is complete. Okay? It's not when our bodies are buried and our souls go to be with Christ in heaven that our salvation is complete. It's when our bodies are raised up again in resurrection. 
Now, the reason I mention this is because I, I think sometimes Christians can romanticize death as though death is the goal. Because, hey, we go to be with the Lord. And I understand that for the Christian, death is the gateway into God's presence. I get that. I understand that. I do. I really do. I understand that God has defanged death as an enemy for the Christian. And so we can breathe our last breath in peace and die and go to be with the Lord. I get that. But as long as death is in the world, our adoption is incomplete. God's final purpose remains undone. What does God think about death? Well, in John 11, we get a glimpse of this. Jesus, John 11 is the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And there are two times uh, that it says Jesus was deeply moved. You familiar with that account? So one was when Jesus was with Mar- Martha, or excuse me, Mary and the Jewish people, it says Jesus was deeply moved. And then one time when he stood at the tomb, it says he was deeply moved. Now many scholars and theologians have suggested that the word deeply moved means indignant. Jesus was indignant. He was angry. The question is, what was he angry about? Death. He was angry about death, right? It's not the way it was supposed to be. Death is the great enemy, but it will be the final defeated enemy, which will be put under the feet of Jesus Christ and made his footstool when he comes. And so what's the object of our hope? It's resurrection at the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the object of our ultimate hope. Now, I, I understand that as, as Christians, we even talk and use the word hope in more temporary ways. Like, I, boy, I sure hope. Like, I, I really do hope this week for Cindy is better than last week. I do. I really do. And it's not wrong to you. Like, we have hope in God that he helps us, that he blesses us, that he, that he heals and that he restores and all of that. But our ultimate hope is in that future resurrection. The redemption of our bodies. When we, re- when we receive bodies that will not be subject to futility and decay and corruption and sickness and entropy and disease and death. And when we experience the fullness of our adoption as sons. And when we will never experience sin. There's one more thing that Paul draws out in this context, and I just want to kind of say it in passing because I focused on it more two weeks ago, but um, all, it's not just that we're going to be raised, it's not just that we're going to receive resurrection bodies and be restored and renewed and resurrected, but all of the created order is as well. It will be renewed, restored, renovated, resurrected, whatever other appropriate R word you want to fill in there. It's going to be when he comes again, all of the created order is going to be made new. Now, all we know, because this is the only world we've lived in, all we know is a creation subjected to futility. That's all we know, is that things break and things 
decay and things are corrupted and things die. But not the new earth. So, the object of our hope ultimately is resurrection. Let's talk about the substance of our hope. Verses 24 and 25, it says, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What is the substance of our hope? The substance of our hope is things not seen. I'd like to set the record straight up front here. We hope for things that we can't see, but that doesn't mean that they are unreal or immaterial. Okay? Think about it. If our bodies are going to be redeemed, right? If if we're going to be raised, resurrected, our bodies redeemed, that is very much real and material and physical. Okay? If we're waiting for Christ to come, to break through the clouds and behold his glory and majesty, that is very much real and material and physical. The point I think Paul is making is that we are hoping for what is out in the future that we can't see with our eyes right now. And, and I think we got to admit that we can't fully fathom what it's going to be like. We, we, we have what the scripture shows us, but it is going to be so glorious. We can't completely fathom what it's going to be like. Every generation of Christians from when Paul wrote this all the way down to the present day who died with this hope died hoping for what they didn't see. And we will too, unless the Lord comes in our lifetime. So we hope in what we do not see. Okay? Even though we may all say amen to this, and I hope we do, I think we are affected by what we see and hear and feel in the present time more than we might realize. We all suffer disappointments and hardships and and difficulties and loss and pain. But remember, our hope is durable and certain and life-giving, and therefore it can never completely eclipse, excuse me, it can never be completely eclipsed by present suffering. By saying we hope in things that are not seen, Paul is merely, excuse me, Paul is not merely describing what hope is or the, the nature of hope. I think he's describing how focusing on what is unseen actually strengthens our hope, which might sound kind of strange. But just a moment's reflection, I think we understand that. If I say I really hope that something happens tomorrow, and then three days later it still hasn't happened, what happens? Because I'm expecting to see it tomorrow. What happens? I get discouraged, right? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. So I get discouraged, I thought for sure that would happen tomorrow. But if it's something out beyond the horizon that we are certain of, we wait for it. And this gets to the last point, which we'll talk more about. We wait for it with patience, with endurance. So our present hope, excuse me, our hope now can actually outweigh present suffering. And I think that's the point of this broader context here in Romans 8. Now, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18 is a really helpful parallel passage to our text, I think, and perhaps helps us to see how this works. So here's what 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says. For this light, 
momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I love how in that passage, Paul says, he uses the word look. We look to the things that are unseen. Now you might say if they're unseen and we're to look at them, there must be another way of seeing than with just our physical eyes, and there is. I think what Paul is saying is that we're to set our minds and hearts on things that are unseen but certain realities. We're to set our minds and hearts on these things. I remember talking to someone some, some time ago and, uh, and he said something interesting. He said, what if, what if the biggest problem facing Christians is that they need to learn to set their minds on things that are above rather than things that are on the earth. And I said, well, I don't know if that's the biggest problem, but I think, I think you hit on something enormous. We are to set our minds on things that are above. We're to set our minds on the unseen realities that we hope for. And so we hope for what is not seen. But if we set our minds on certainties, then our hope is not a leap in the dark. Our hope is not wishful thinking, and it's not some kind of, you know, self-help or new-agey visualizing and actualizing sort of thing. Our hope is an informed hope. We set our mind on things. We look to things that are unseen but certain and so what does that mean? I th- so I, I thought about that this week. What, what is Paul getting at when he says we hope in what we don't see? So our, I think at least one way to talk about this is that our hope is informed by certain things. And I thought of three things that I want to bring out today. Our hope is informed by history. Our hope is informed by the Bible. That's second. And our hope is informed by experience even experience. Our hope is informed by history. Our hope is informed by the Bible. Our hope is informed by experience. So let's think about these just briefly for a few moments. Christian hope is informed by history or Christian hope is historical. And what I mean is that our hope in what we believe God will do in the future, even though we don't currently see it, is based on what God has done in history. And here's what we sang about it in almost every song. We believe that on the third day, the stone was rolled away and Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb. Like, we believe that. It's not just a story that we, you know, kind of make-believe story that we have affinity towards or something like that. We actually believe that happened. And because of that, the world has been fundamentally altered. Of course, we believe this primarily through the biblical account, but the point I want to make is that it happened, that this is to inform our hope of resurrection. And, and, and here's, here's the point, ancillary point connected with this. Because Jesus was raised... 
the Bible says, because that actually happened, because he was raised, we're guaranteed that we will be raised too. Not just spiritually, that happened when we were born again. We're gonna be raised bodily. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to him. You heard the word first fruits there? That's an agricultural term, okay? It's, it's a term used in agriculture, you know, whether it's a field with crop in it or a tree or something like that. The first fruits of a harvest is the first portion of a harvest which then anticipates the fullness of what's to come, okay? So Christ's bodily resurrection was the first fruits which anticipates and guarantees that all who are in him will be raised, and that's all important, all who are in Christ will be raised at his coming. And so our Christian hope is historical. We believe on the third day, about 1,990 years ago, particular week, Jesus walked out of the tomb with a glorified body. And we're going to receive a body like his at his coming. So Christian hope is historical, but it's also biblical. Christian hope is biblical. Our hope in what we do not see is based on what God has said. Remember the hope, remember the story of Abraham that I talked about earlier. Abraham, in hope against hope, believed God. All he had to go on was what God, what God had said, right? We have so much more to go on in terms of what God has said than Abraham did, don't we? We have so much more to go on than he did. We have the whole Bible and all that God has said. And we have the coming of Christ, his perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection, all recorded for us in Scripture. We have so much more to go on than Abraham did. But how often do we question whether or not God can keep his word? God is not a father who makes idle promises. I mean, every father in here understands what it's like to tell your children you're going to do something and then realize you actually can't, (laughs) right? Or maybe what I said I'd do for them wouldn't be good for them, (laughs) so I'm not going to. (laughs) Um, God is not like that. God does not say he's going to do something and then later decide he's unable to or choose not to. He has the ability to do what he says, and he would never go back on a promise. He is the ultimate father, the father all of us fathers should aspire to be like. And has God spoken about our resurrection? Has God given us promises of our resurrection? Of course he has, and he can't lie. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. He's able to keep his word, and he will. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 57 says. Behold, this is Paul writing, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, 
in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, our hope in future resurrection is based on God's word and what he has said, his word of promise to us. And so our hope is biblical. It's based on the the God-breathed scriptures that we possess. And finally, our Christian hope is experiential. Christian hope is experiential, at least in part. Our hope in our final adoption when our bodies are redeemed is strengthened by a present experience of it. Now, every good Bible person should want to tread carefully here, (laughs) okay? Because we don't want to live completely by our experience. But our experience is not irrelevant. And certainly, I think what's drawn out in the bigger context here in Romans 8, it's not irrelevant at all. But I do, we want to tread carefully here, right? But we want to tread wherever the Bible takes us, and it takes us here. I actually think this might be the missing link for many Christians which keeps hope from being far more potent in our lives than it could be. Our hope is the redemption of our bodies, which Paul connects to our final adoption as sons. But we not only wait for the the fullness of our adoption in the future, but we have a present taste and experience of adoption now, don't we? We do. The fullness of our adoption, Paul describes it as the resurrection, or sorry, the redemption of our bodies. That's in the future. But Paul, even just like seven verses earlier, describes the glory of this present experience of our adoption through the Holy Spirit. I guess it's more like 10 verses earlier. Look back at Romans 8, 15 and 16, or if you have your Bibles open, or I'll read it here. Here's what Paul said, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Fear is not just something we think about, it's something we experience. I've never heard anyone say, I think my mind is telling me that I'm afraid right now. (laughs) We think, no, I'm freaked out, you know, okay? So fear is something we don't just think about, it's something we experience, something we feel. You have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we've received not the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, we've received the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit of adoption as sons and dwelling by whom we cry, Abba, 
Father. Whatever else that is, that is something that we experience. Not only that, but Paul also refers to Christians as those who have received the first, first fruits of the Spirit. In verse 23, uh, that was read earlier. We talked about first fruits as a kind of initial crop in lieu of the full harvest. Here it's referring to the Spirit as an initial installment or down payment in, in anticipation of our full future adoption. If God had simply given us his word of promise, amen, praise God. If God had given us his word of promise and also a reminder of what he's done in history, which of course we get from the Bible, we would say amen, praise God. But that's not all he gives us. He also gives us himself through his spirit in the present, indwelling to abide with us forever. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans, I will be with you. I will come. Actually, he says, I will not leave his orphans. I will come to you. And he speaks of another helper. Of course, he was talking about the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption who has come to dwell in our hearts. And I even think back in Rome, to Romans chapter 5. When Paul says hope, read, read some of these verses earlier, I think. Uh, when Paul said hope does not disappoint and then he gives a reason. Do you know, remember what that reason is? Hope does not disappoint. Okay? Hope for what we don't see does not disappoint. Why? How? How can that be? Because God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. Hope does not disappoint. Why? Because now we have the spirit of adoption dwelling in our hearts through whom God has poured his love into us and revealed his fatherly care and affection for us. We, um, we can ignore the Holy Spirit and, and uh, shamefully I have at times, but I think we do that to our own harm and to the weakening of our hope. So Christian hope in what we don't see is historical, it's biblical, and it is something we experience now. Finally, let's talk about the manner in which we hope. The manner in which we hope. So we looked at um, the object of our hope, resurrection. The substance of our hope, things we don't see, but it's, but it's rooted in history, the Bible, and our present experience through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. What is the manner in which we hope? Verse 25. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. So if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. There are two words we need to look at. The first is the word wait, and the other is the word patience, because that's the manner in which we hope. We hope with waiting and with patience or we hope we wait for this hope and we wait with patience so the word the word wait a few translations the new king james the new american standard um, i think the lsb uh, legacy standard bible as well all add a word and and the word is eager or eager eagerly or with eagerness okay so the idea is we wait with eagerness or we wait 
eagerly. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait with eagerness for it. The second word is patience. We wait eagerly with patience, or maybe you could say with fortitude, or with endurance, or with perseverance. Now, what I find so interesting here is that we are not being commanded to wait with patience for this hope. We're not being exhorted to do this. Paul isn't saying, this resurrection, this hope is out before you now. Here's what you must do. Wait for it with patience. He's not saying that. This is a statement of fact. If you have this hope, you will wait for it with patience. You see that? If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It's not a command. It's a statement of fact. We wait for it with patience. Charles Spurgeon, just the way that only Spurgeon can, has this short, pithy statement that makes that point. He says, those who do not hope cannot wait. Those who do not, now that's a word, listen, we need to hear this. We hate waiting. Don't we? We are an impatient bunch. Those who have no hope cannot wait. That's ex- well, Paul says the opposite here. <laughs> if you have this hope, you will wait. This is why it's so key to hope in what we don't see. But if, we, but if the big hope that overshadows or engulfs our life is the resurrection, which we don't currently see, right? We don't currently see that. It's not out on the horizon that we can see that coming like next week or next year perhaps. But we know that it's rooted in history and it's biblical and even in the present we have a partial experience of it. Then it gives us the ability to wait eagerly with patience. And so in this present time, which is a time of futility and suffering, what are we to do? In Christ, looking forward to that future hope, we keep plodding along, don't we? We keep moving forward. We keep going. We plod forward, longing, eagerly waiting with patience, with endurance, and I think we could add here with joy because we have an absolute confident, certain hope out before us. We have this hope. We have the hope of our full adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And this is how verse 18 works. Remember verse 18, two weeks ago I said verse 18 is kind of the kind of the overarching point, and everything else, verses 19 to 23, all support that. And I think verse 24 and 25 do as well. It's all pointing back to verse 18. Verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Present suffering, the sufferings of this... Now remember, Paul wrote this. Paul had a long and pretty impressive resume of suffering. And he said, present suffering, it is not 
worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed, with that future glory. Samuel Rutherford, a, a 16th century and early 17th century Puritan, said this. He said, Our little inch of time suffering is not, wor- not worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. Now, he's talking about heaven and not, not the resurrection, but I think, you know, we get the point. Our little inch of time suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. And that is not to minimize suffering. It isn't. Because we don't enjoy it. And we ought to seek, whether it's our own or other people's, to alleviate suffering wherever we can. But present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. I wanted to, wanted to read a story real quick. I have it on my phone here. I pulled it up. I have this book called Trial and Triumph that has a, has a whole bunch of stories of Christians who suffered persecution. Most of them martyrdom. And there's a story, I'd, I mean, a lot of them I'd, I'd heard of before and heard the stories, but there was this young girl. I'd never, I'd never heard the story of her. I got this book a couple years ago. It's a story of a, of a young girl named Blandina, a young woman. She was about 21, 22 when she died. And I want to read the story here. She was, she was in Lyon, France, uh, during a time of severe persecution, early, um, early to mid-2nd century. And she was there, uh, she was in prison or a jail with other Christians and endured severe mistreatment and abuse. And I just want to read, I'm going to kind of pick up about halfway through the story, but just, just bear with me for a few minutes. There's a line at the end that I think is so key to what we talked about today, okay? Not because, none of us will ever suffer like this, I don't think, like she did. But, there's a line at the end that's important. All right, Blandina and the other Christians returned to prison. From morning to night, jailers punished frail Blandina. They pierced her body with daggers. They crushed her limbs upon the rack Curse Christ, they taunted. Tell us all the wicked deeds the godless do. She responded and said, I am a Christian. We do nothing to be ashamed of. At the close of day, the jailers could scarcely believe she was still breathing. Her body was so broken. Who are these Christians, they asked. They go willingly and cheerfully to their deaths. The next day, soldiers again brought Blandina and some other Christians to the arena she was hung to a wooden post and tended as, it, as food for wild animals. Blandina lifted her eyes to the Lord and prayed aloud, O oh, Father, strengthen us as we suffer for the glory of Christ. Her, her faith gave fresh courage to the others. One by one, the believers died, torn to pieces by the, by the wild beasts. But to the crowd's amazement, Blandina remained untouched by the animals, and the guards hauled her back to prison. A few days later, she was brought again to the arena, now with Ponticus, a Christian boy of 15 years old. Stand firm, dear Ponticus, Blandina urged him. Again, they were whipped and attacked by animals, and soon Ponticus lay dead. But Blandina, her body bloodied and broken, yet survived, her face radiant with the peace of Christ. One eyewitness said she looked as if she were invited to a wedding feast, not thrown to the beasts. She was. 
invited to a wedding feast. Her persecutors, frustrated and angry, wrapped her in a net and threw her to a bull that tossed her around the arena. Finally, a soldier reached down and slew her with a sword. The pagans said they had never seen a woman suffer so much or so long. The bodies of Blandina and the other Christians lined the streets of Lyon. Guards stood watch, preventing their friends from giving them a decent burial. Here's the point, or here's the thing I want to draw out here. Why won't you let them bury their dead, the guards were asked. Listen to their answer. These are pagan guards. So they may have no hope in the resurrection. It is this hope that gives them such courage. After six days, the bodies were burned to ashes and thrown into the Rhone River. The guards said, now let's see if they'll rise again. Of course, how ridiculous. Christ is going to raise them, isn't he? But it is the hope of resurrection that gives them such courage. And I think there's a connection between courage and waiting, right? Hope giving courage and hope producing eager waiting with patience, with endurance. Because courage is not, um, courage is not never being afraid or facing fear or having fear. It's uh, continuing on when you face it. Right? I think that's probably what courage is, isn't it? I mean, I don't know. I suppose some soldier who's fought in, on the front lines could tell us. There might have been some fear. But what do you do? You keep moving forward, right? You endure. And that's what we're called to do. There's a prayer that I think is worth our remembrance and prayer and our prayer in connection with all of this this morning. And it's in Ephesians 1. It's one of Paul's great prayers. Paul's praying for the church at Ephesus and he says, I remember you always in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Remember we talked earlier, we're, we're to look to things that we can't see, so we don't see them with these eyes, but, but, but if the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, we can see them by faith. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which you were called. Amen? Let's pray this. Let's pray it right now. Father in heaven, this is our prayer. Open up the eyes of our understanding, Father. Grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Father, help us to know by faith. Help us to see with the eyes of understanding the hope to which you've called us.